0: Let's bow our heads together in prayer, and Lord, as we now come to this final sermon in this series, we ask for your empowerment of your spirit to take your word and drive it deeply into our hearts. We need to hear from you. We need to hear your path in our lives. We thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our final sermon in the series on revival. That doesn't mean this is the end of revival. Sermons don't bring revival. But this is all about seeking God for revival. When I say revival, I'm referring to times in our spiritual lives where our spiritual lives have flatlined. It's a pretty picturesque kind of a term to put it that way. It's a time when our dry and dusty souls need that cool and divine quench of water, uh, quenching water from the Lord that refreshes the soul. It's It's those times in our lives where God seems very distant and our prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling and uh, we just can't even see Him at work in our lives, let alone around us. A time of spiritual refreshment is necessary. We've been taking this series to study the various revivals in the Bible. We've gone through several of them. We haven't hit them all, but today we're hitting one that's in the book of Nehemiah. So I want you to take a copy of the Bible and find Nehemiah there in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's a little bit before uh, Psalms and before Job, a little bit back there, just before those couple books. You'll see it. And uh, the story of Nehemiah is fascinating. Nehemiah is one of the unsung heroes of the Old Testament. A great, a godly man, a man of integrity, a man with tremendous vision and leadership ability. Uh, While you're finding Nehemiah, let me just tell you a little bit about the story of Nehemiah. It's fascinating. The people of Israel had fallen into sin. Fallen far from God, and God kept warning them and warning them and warning them. They would not listen, so God brought judgment on them, punishment. Foreign armies came in, carried away many of the people from the land. They went into exile. They were in captivity. It was not a pretty period of time. At the end of that period of time, when God was done punishing them, though, he allowed a number of them to return to the land. And they came in various groups and and parties. And the first group back settled into the land, and some of them got going with rebuilding of the temple. And more groups came, and the temple was rebuilt. And then this guy, Nehemiah... God burdens his heart for the city of Jerusalem because although the temple was up and running and sacrifices were running again, the the city was in ruin. Nehemiah received a burden from God on his heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And men were there going to be problems in doing that? And the story, the opening seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah is how Nehemiah went through the process of gaining that vision from God through prayer and, and having a burden on his heart to carry this thing out and then facing all kinds of opposition and resource challenges and all kinds of issues. And God kept miraculously answering these prayers. And within record time, the walls went back up in Jerusalem. It's an amazing story. Read it. Enjoy it. Nehemiah comes out of captivity and leads the people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And by the time you get to chapter eight, where we are today, everybody's thinking, well, the temple's up and running. That's great. And the walls of Jerusalem are up and that's great. And so now life can return to normal no such thing you don't go through traumatic events like this like pandemics and things get back to normal and then nothing you know it's going to it's never going to go back to what it was after these kinds of traumatic events there will be a new normal whatever that's going to be nehemiah chapter 8 is actually the beginning of a tremendous revival after the rebuilding of the temple after the rebuilding of the walls of jerusalem people have been through a lot there was a need to revive their souls. The cool water that brings relief from dry and dusty lives. Chapter eight, nine, and 10 is a great revival period. I wanna survey a little bit of that today with you and challenge you again with a couple of conditions for revival, seeking it in your own life. The first condition chapter 8. It's a return to the Bible. Kind of sounds cliche-ish, doesn't it? Get back to the Bible. It's a great starting point for revival. When you open to Nehemiah chapter 8, the opening verse says in the seventh month first verse, in the seventh month came the Israelites that had settled in their towns, and all the people assembled as one person in the square by the water gate there in Jerusalem, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And some people would say, well, why in the seventh month are they calling on, on Ezra to uh, be reading the book of the law, the, the, the Old Testament laws, the, the scripture that they had? Why, why would they do that? Deuteronomy 31 will tell you clearly why they did that. Every seven years, there was to be a public reading of the scriptures so people could turn their heart back to the things that were most important to God and get off of all the bending trails they had gotten onto for so many years. Now, these people had been in captivity, had been way more than seven years. They realized it was important to hear the word of God again. So they came together and they asked uh, one of the uh, scribes of the law, the the priestly people from uh, that day to Ezra to read the scriptures out loud. And so verse 2 of chapter 8. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law uh, before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand in verse 3. And he read it out loud from daybreak till noon. That is a long reading, and he had no PA system. So they're gathered there in Jerusalem. He's reading from daybreak till noon as he faces the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened intently. They really listened to what God had to say. Revival comes when we listen to the Word. And there needs to be some getting back to the Word in many Christians' lives. They wonder why there's spiritual flatlining in their lives. They've not been significantly into God's Word. It is a hard thing to think about morning till midday. From dawn to midday, four, five, six hours of reading, and they were intent. What does he have to say to us? Oh, oh, we're not doing that, or we didn't do that. No wonder we went into punishment. And, and they just kept hearing and hearing from God. Chapter eight, verse five. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Isn't it interesting the amount of respect and reverence they had for God's word? They know they're about to hear from God, so they stand and they're standing this whole period of time from early day till midday. And they listen intently. Such incredible hunger to hear what God was going to say. In fact, Chapter 8, verse 8, the text says, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving it meaning so that people could understand what was being read. Making it clear and giving it meaning. That doesn't mean it didn't have meaning. It means they didn't know what some of it meant. All honesty, have you ever read the Bible and wonder, What in the world is this all about? What's in it for me today to help me live for Jesus? I, I don't understand this passage. A need to make it clear, give some meaning. What has happened to many Christians' hunger to hear God speak through His Word? Has it been dulled by the stuff of day to day life? When our kids were young, we used to have this dog. Uh, her name was Lassie. After a while, we couldn't let Lassie upstairs where we were in the dining room because at mealtime, she, she just always wanted food. She'd sit there, you know, waiting for somebody to give her a scrap, tail wagging, licking her chops, going back and forth between her feet. If Christians could be so focused, singularly focused, God, what do you have for me? Give me a morsel today. But alas, somehow that has fallen by the wayside for many Christians. And we're caught in day-to-day life, and we'll take a few minutes, maybe maybe some will take a few minutes to read from the Bible. They'll wonder what it would mean. What does this mean for me today? Before service this morning, I was meeting with some of the members of the worship team and we were talking about life and ministry and theology. It was kind of a fun talk and we prayed together about service and so on. But at one point while we were talking, my cell phone dinged and the ding that it dinged was the ding for Emily. She had texted me. She's been away for a week. And as we were talking, I heard the ding, and I knew exactly who it was from. It's her ring, distinct ringtone. What would you think if I just sort of, oh, I'll get to it sometime. It's not that important. I remember thinking as I was talking to her, I, you know, I want to know what she says. And eventually, I finally checked it after a few more minutes. I had to check and see what she said. But suppose there was no such drive. Suppose she wrote me a text or an email or we talk at night on the phone. Maybe I see her call come in and "Ah, I don't feel like I'm watching a movie right now. What would you think of my walk with her, my relationship with her? What does one think of their relationship with God if there's no hunger for hearing from Him? Have the things of our lives so pulled us away from this book For us, the furthest thing in our mind would be to spend the whole morning hearing from Him, standing before Him and hearing it read and getting some explanation, how does this apply to my life? And people would say, well, I'd I'd love to do that, but I am just so busy, I got so... We just put all that stuff ahead of God in His Word. And maybe this is why revival is not experienced. The stuff in our lives has gotten in the way of the word. The rebuilding of walls in Jerusalem. The rebuilding of temple, all good things. But there needs to come a time where we really significantly, intently, respectfully hear from his word. What is it with Christians that they can go day after day after day with very little, if any, hearing from God's Word? Do we really believe that God directs our lives through His Word? If we believe that God directs our lives through His Word and yet we're not in it, are we being directed by His Word? Or are we making up our own ideas of what life is about? We live in a day where maps have gone bye-bye. You don't see maps anymore. And even if you did, most people can't read a map anymore. Someday the Internet's going to go down, and there's not going to be a GPS. Then we'll see who can read a map, if you can find a map. When I was a teenager, I was a Boy Scout. We learned to read maps, and we learned to read maps and set a course with a compass. You know, a thing that points to north. Most people say, well, how does a compass set direction with a map? 360 points, degrees on a compass. So you chart your path, and the Internet goes down. Don't worry. I know how to read a map. I know how to use a compass. Come see me. (laughs) If we can find a map. You set a course with a compass. I need to go 235 degrees. But the course you start on is 236 degrees. One degree off. What's one degree? No big deal. One degree off. At the beginning, it's no big deal. But as you get further and further down the road, that one degree gets further and further So by the time you've gone several miles, you can't even see the other degree. That's exactly what happens in Christians' lives. The word is to be our direction of God in life. Direction in life. But alas, we're not in it. So I think I know what God is. And many times we're right, but sometimes we're very off and we don't even know it. Do you believe that as you read God's Word, even if you don't know, know what all of it says, do you believe that the Spirit of God can lead you through passages that you don't even necessarily understand and He can redirect your course, the course that you would have taken? Oh no, I shouldn't. I guess God wants me to go a different direction. Yes, but if we're not in the Word, we won't know that, will we? course, corrections don't take place. And so we get several miles down the road in life, and before long, you can't even see the Savior anymore. The people of Nehemiah's day understood they needed to hear in a major way from God's Word. From early dawn to noontime, the priest Ezra read God's commands for the people and what God wanted them to do. And they began to conclude, no wonder we went into exile and we were punished. Our fathers, they were way off track. We weren't even close. We all need to hear God's word, what he says into our lives, and stop making up our Christian walk on our own. God and his word never change some people say i've heard the story so many times david and goliath and all the other ones and, and jesus you know dividing the meal and the, the bread and the fish and 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 the miracle of storming the you know calming the stormy seas I, I get it i've heard all those stories time and time but do we understand how god leads us through such things through such stories God's spirit is given to us by Jesus. He went back to heaven and he gave us his spirit to lead us into his truth. We need to hear significantly from this book. And it begins to show us just how far off course we have gotten. A desperate need whether we sense it or not. This is the first condition. Back to the word. That's what chapter 8 was about. They heard the word from morning till near noon and just kept hearing it and hearing it. And saying, oh, we've been off track there. We've been off track there. We need to get this going again. We... They began to see how far off they were. Ah! The beginnings of revival... The Word of God, a great condition, so necessary in our lives. Chapter 9, the next chapter, the second condition. The second condition, a focus on confession of sin in prayer. After hearing the Word and all the things where their fathers and they themselves have been off track and why God brought punishment on them, they begin to see we've been off track, we've got to get back on track, God, we're so sorry. And they repent and, and they grieve. Where they have come from, being off path, getting back on track. This is chapter 9. Focus on confession. The word will lead you in that direction. Chapter 9, verse 1. 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting. Giving up food, they're so intent on pursuing God. Wearing sackcloth and grieving with dust on their heads. Signs of repentance and confession and and turning from their sins and agreeing with God what they have done wrong and what their fathers have done wrong. In verse 2 of the chapter, those Israelites... Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all of the foreigners and they stood in places and they confessed their sin and the wickedness of their fathers. They recognized how far off base they had been. Had they never been in the Word, they never would have seen it. Now that they've seen it, they must confess. And they do. Look at verse 3. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day they heard it again read and they spent another quarter of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. When's the last time we spent such significant time hearing from God's word and praying? These people were serious. It is interesting that what follows here in chapter 9, these opening verses, is the prayer of confession that was prayed. It is probably the longest prayer of confession in the Bible, Nehemiah 9. I'd urge you to read it. Maybe it's a time of recognizing some things in your life that aren't as tight with God as they should be. By the way, there's a couple of other great prayers of confession, and they're easy to remember because they're all in chapter nines. Nehemiah, chapter 9. Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel's prayer of confession. Ezra. Ezra. 9, another great prayer of confession. When the Word of God gets a hold of our hearts, we see where we have been off track, and confession is the next natural step. The events of life have a way of taking their toll on us. We need the Word of God, and we need prayer. Some of you undoubtedly know the date, June 6th, 1944. Some of you know what it is? Shake your heads. Some of you know what it is. Somebody said it. D-Day. The day in which World War II, the Allied forces gathered together And they entered Normandy, northern France, for the sole purpose of taking Europe back from Hitler. It was an unbelievable day. You know, I wasn't alive at that point, but I've read about it. And at the 50th anniversary of D-Day, there was a great documentary actually put together. Peter Jennings, the young Peter Jennings at that point, put it together And uh, it capitalized on the people that were actually at D-Day telling the story. And actually this week I went on the internet and I found it and I watched some of it to sort of remember. And yeah, I suppose you could say it's touching some of the battle scenes and hearing the stories of the people that were at D-Day and the significance, the terrific losses... But the thing that I think touched me the most, and maybe it's because I'm in this series, it wasn't the war scenes and it was not hearing the testimonies of the soldiers that fought there. It was the pictures that Jennings showed in the documentary of people jamming the churches of America, seeking God in prayer. And people gathered around their kitchen tables in their homes, praying together as families. It was people kneeling on street corners of their cities and towns, kneeling with strangers, praying together. It was Franklin Roosevelt, our president, calling our nation to prayer as D-Day was launched. Where is that kind of intensive prayer today for our country with all the struggles that we have seen and all the cries for revival and all the cries for America to return to what are thought to be its founding father's faith? Where is the prayer? Where is the significant input of God's word into our lives showing us where we have gotten off track and the significance of pursuing him in prayer so that our lives change and so there could be revival? We certainly don't expect people who are not lovers of God to pursue him, do we? It has to be us. So chapter eight is a chapter about getting back into the word and the significance of the word, showing us where we've been off track. And chapter nine is all about now that we've seen where we're off track, God, we're so sorry and we're confessing that and praying and seeking him significantly in prayer, a long prayer of confession. closing few moments of this sermon I want to just reference chapter 10 because as a result of being significantly in the word, chapter 8 and significantly confessing chapter 9, now chapter 10 occurs where there are new renewed commitments you know when the word shows you where you're off target and the prayers of confession have flowed God, we got to change. We got to be different. In fact, the last verse of chapter 9 introduces the renewed commitment. It's not the best chapter division in the Bible, but in view of all this, Nehemiah nine thirty eight. in view of all this, we are now making this binding agreement, that is because we've heard what God said in His Word, and because we've been people of prayer and sought Him in prayer, now in view of this, we make this binding agreement, putting it in writing. Our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it, led by their leaders, their governmental leaders, led by their religious leaders, who Make a written agreement and they sign their names to it. God, things are going to be different in town. We're not going to play the games we did before. We are renewing our commitment to you. And so they put it in writing. And the opening 27 verses of Nehemiah 10 are all those boring names of great leaders who stood up and said, God, things are going to be different today. And they're named in the Bible. Can't pronounce half the names. I'm not going to try to read them for you. But these were the heroes. The leaders who bound themselves together and said, we're going to lead in this direction. We're going to lead towards what God has for us. So the first 27 verses are all of those people. And then verses 28 and 29, the people say, yeah, way to go, leaders, and we're going to follow. And if we don't curse be on us, they renewed their commitments to God. You see, the word has a way of doing that to you, and confession has a way of doing that to you. These conditions that we need to see our souls revived. It doesn't happen in a five or ten minute daily devotional period. Significant periods of time seeking God for who he is. A renewed level of obedience. And then, after all of the leaders are mentioned, and after the people agree, and curse be on us if we don't, they begin to go through the promises and commitments that they had returned to. And it dealt with things like who in the world they will now marry and who they won't marry. They're not going to make the mistakes of their fathers. They talk about what laws they're going to really focus on keeping that they've been breaking. And they talk about, and we will renew our tithes and our giving to the Lord. And we will give our children to the priesthood and stop keeping them from being in the priesthood. They promise before God never to neglect the house of God again and the work of God. They're responding to significant time where God has spoken to them and where they've repented things are going to be different. That's what the leaders and that's what the people are saying. That, my friends, is what you call revival. You know beyond the shadow of a doubt when this moment occurs in your life, when the Word of God has got such a grip on your heart, when you've poured your heart out significantly to God in confession and when the renewed commitment begins to fester. This is revival. You throw out your agenda and the excuses of, I'm just too busy, I I want to get to this, but I've got too many things I've got to do right now. See, that stuff is in the way. And attention has to be given to God and what he's saying. And we're always busy people. Somewhere we've got to draw the line and say, enough. It is time to seek God. We've built enough walls. And We've rebuilt the temple. Now we've got to seek God. This is the beginning of revival. There's a price to pay. Are you willing to pay it? I love some of the stories that come out of the life of Alexander the Great. Magnificent leader, military leader. You know, what did he live to? Age 32, I think it was. He had conquered the then known world. About 10 years before his death, he and his armies were entering uh, India and they were going to conquer some of India, you know, to add to his great resume of all the conquerings. So they came into India. There was one particularly small city. It was uh, three sides of cliffs, of uh, huge ravines leading up to where the city was up on a hill. You could approach it from the side, There's more of a, but you know, three sides you couldn't get it. And you just couldn't get there. Alexander approached the city and he heard the scouting reports of his scouts. Three sides you can't get there. Fourth side, there's an incline, but it's easily defended from the city. It's tough. It's going to be a tough one to get in there. Alexander heard all the reports, and he said, no problem. He said to his generals, take the armies and go over to the bottom of the slope and just stay there. My hundred bodyguards and I, we will take the city. How are they going to do that? Alexander, once stood at the edge of the cliff areas where the big ravine was, could look up to the city and he called out and he asked the king to come to the wall so he could speak with him. King came to the wall and Alexander looked at him intently and he said, open your gates and surrender or prepare to die. The king laughed, he said, we've known you were coming for a long time, we have stocked up on food, Water, we have enough. We can outlast you for years. Alexander had his bodyguard lined up to his side. And without missing a beat, he looked at that king. He never took his eyes off the king. He simply gave the orders, Forward, march! And his hundred bodyguards began to walk. The king watched. They were walking towards the edge of the cliff. And the first one got to the edge of the cliff, and without missing a step, walked right over, stepped into the ravine, and fell to his death. The king couldn't believe it. Second soldier, same thing, steps off, falls to his death. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Finally, Alexander, without ever taking his gaze off the king, said, Halt! The king begins to tremble. He's thinking to himself, How can we stand against this? Alexander waited for his response, and the king finally said two words We surrender. He opened the city gates, let Alexander and his troops in. What God is looking for are fully devoted people that will march off the cliff to their death. Not that you will die. You will die to self. You will die to your agendas of life. But you will live a glorious life in Christ. The things of this earth will not hold sway on you. The way they currently do. Full surrender. When the word has taken grip of your heart and when significant time of prayer and confession has gripped you as well, it will result in renewed commitments, a new agenda, a dying to self, a total sellout to Him. And you know what? There's not an enemy that can stand against this. Great is our Lord. And what he does in us and through us and even in spite of us. Revival comes to people who are fully and totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. March off the cliff ready. Is there any area of your life that you are currently holding back? Including busyness with all the stuff that you need to do. Is it worth it for you to continue on this path as opposed to seeking God for revival? I, for one, am committed to spend significant time in the three prayers of confession. Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. Seeking God. Letting him grip my life with real truth that is important, His importance, not what I think is important. Will you join me in that? Perhaps you're here today or you're tuning in online here on YouTube and you're thinking to myself, these guys are crazy. No, we love our Lord. He is important to us and We only love him because he first loved us. Human beings don't come naturally wired to love God this way, but when they begin to realize that they are separated from God Almighty of this universe and that there's no way to get to him and we'll never be able to be good enough to get to him, but that he loved us and he sent his son and he punished his own son for our sins, when that truth really grips our lives... We come to the place to trust him and him alone for salvation. We believe Jesus paid the way for us to have our sins forgiven, thereby providing us salvation. For some of us, that truth has been dulled a little bit by the activities of this life. And there is a need to get back to God's perspective. Today, we are calling that revival the need for revival among God's people for all of us. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of studying these passages and then sharing the results of these passages with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I thank you that together we can seek you, and Lord, use your word to change us. Significant time in it because... Perhaps we are significantly off your path, and then significant time in confession and repentance. And then Father, from that may new habits and recommitments flow, reestablishing priorities that perhaps have been deserted, loving you with a new level of fervency and passion. Open our hearts to see your truth, to sense your demands on our lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.